0: So today is the end of Faith Foundations. You've learned it all, and now I can retire. It's, it's yours again. I did my part. No, no. I, it's the 14th week of Faith Foundations, the 14th and final week. And so today we are going to look at thoughts on life, thoughts On life. Now, this is not a memoir, not my thoughts on life, but it is thoughts. Our thoughts should be on life. So, it might surprise some of you to find out that in elementary school I was an awkward child. (laughs) I had Willy Wonka's twinkle of mischievous mischievous twinkle in my eye, but I was short. I mean, like really short. And I was loud. That's not a surprise to any of you. Uh, I had even less of a filter on what came out of my mouth then than I do now. Got me into lots of trouble. And uh, uh, I I was just, I was awkward. Uh, I was probably a little too smart for my own good, and the teachers would have to send me to the office on regular occasions when I disrupted the lessons. Um, but uh, I, I did have one thing that I took at the time sort of a sick pleasure in, which was that I wasn't the most awkward person at my elementary school. I was only the second most awkward kid at my elementary school. Uh, there was a girl that often shared class uh, with me, and I remember still she would even fourth, fifth, sixth grade would put her head in her desk and scream and like get really upset, and I would say, well, at least I'm not as awkward as that, right? Well, this is as an eight, a nine, a ten-year-old, and You know, her parents would have to come and get her from the elementary school and take her home from time to time. And I remember as a little kid thinking, boy, I bet she comes from a screwed up family. Fast forward 30 years. There's a man that I've come to know who is kind, compassionate, generous, faithful. And he asked me the other day, we were just sharing a moment together, and he said, have you ever seen that movie called Instant Family? And I said, not yet it 's a it 's a movie about the foster f- foster adopt family and uh, he said well it 's really it 's really actually um, it 's been a real encouragement to me and you know it 's really helped my family and He started to tell me this story how he and his wife couldn 't have kids and so they had signed up to foster and to be an adopt adoption an adoption family and within six months they adopted they had two. Children, adopted children whose mothers were on drugs during pregnancy. Um, and he started telling me some of the stories. And it occurred to me that, and we've discovered that this man whom I love is the father of the girl from elementary school. Now, in a moment... The Lord allowed me to see myself as a boy. And the conclusions that I draw that were so wrong, they were so wrong. And he said, you know, you do that with me sometimes. We see things take a few data points we feel some pain and then we start filling in the blanks we start making up stories and i'm grateful that the lord allowed me to see in that moment and provide the rest of the sto- the rest of the story or an understanding, an illumination that could correct and redeem the thoughts that I had back here, the conclusions I had back here? How many of you have ever been blessed by receiving illumination over here that can correct darkness back here? You know, in this uh, in this season of time, you know, I uh, we we've, we've watched paradise burn. We have watched people go through unspeakable or unexplainable suffering. We had a a pastor that I knew here locally killed by a drunk driver. Um, we've had a number of people die unexpectedly in unexplainable ways that at least we can't rationalize, we can't put all the pieces together and draw a line and see the picture for what it really is. And it leaves us questioning. But I want to take you through a small journey through Scripture because the Lord has encouraged my heart after that little interchange and all of the suffering that I see and that we see going on right now. He took me through a journey of an encouragement in the Word. Would you like to go on that journey just for a minute? Okay, let's do it. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is the point where God is renewing the covenant he made with Abraham with the children of Israel. They have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they are at a place called Moab. Moab is the last place they were at before they crossed the River Jordan into the promised land. And so he is the Lord right before, it's like... (laughs) Right before I give my son the, uh, the go-kart, I got to say, okay, wait, hold on. Now let's go over the rules. Let's go over the things before I turn you loose on this. So God has the children of Israel at Moab right before they're about to enter and possess the promised land, and he speaks to them through Moses. And in chapter 29, God says, you saw the trials the suffering that you had in Egypt, you saw the signs that I gave you and I gave Pharaoh, you saw the great wonders that I performed in Egypt and bringing you out of that place, you saw that your clothes and your sandals didn't wear out from 40 years of wandering miraculously, you were sustained without bread or drink in the wilderness. He said, you saw the idols of all the nations that you passed by, that they worshiped other gods, that they were frustrated in darkness. And he said, you did not yet have a heart to perceive, eyes to see, or ears to hear, even to this day. What God is saying is, is that You see in part, you saw me do a few things and you've praised me for it. You've tasted it. you, You have part of the story, but you don't see the whole story. You don't see the arc that I see. You don't see the plan from the big picture yet. And he says, and because sin itself is a bitter root, you will find yourself in captivity again. He's foreshadowing the captivity of Babylon. And then you will be scattered across the earth and other nations will question you and your God. Talk about raining on the parade. It'd be like right before your housewarming party, you got a love note from God that... The house you're about to walk into is going to burn down, but not to worry. But this ongoing series of struggles, it parallels the captivity of sin itself. Like in chapter 28, God says, I've laid before you life and death. Choose life. But what he's also saying is is that I've delivered you from this captivity, but because sin is a bitter root eventually you will find yourself in captivity again because the root hasn't been taken out. But God doesn't leave them just with that ironic love note. He says, in this future rescue, in this rescue... God promises, he said, I will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children and your descendants forever so that you will finally have the ability to love God with your heart and your soul and live. Right, what the, the I will finally give you the ability to, to be free from this cycle of captivity. I will finally, I will give you the ability to love me with your heart and your soul, this promise is profoundly fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and God goes on, He says, "In that day, I will prosper and multiply the generations to come more than any generation past, that the work of our hands would abound, that our children would multiply, our lof- livestock and land would flourish, all for good. He says, i doing I 'm going to do this, all for good, because I rejoice." Because the Lord rejoices over us. That's good news. That's good news. He's talking about the age of the church. He's talking about us. So what about the last verse in chapter 29? It's the hinge verse between the experience of the children of Israel up to that point. They, haven't, they don't fully comprehend or understand all that Jesus is going to do. They're about to walk into a promised land. God's talking to them about yet another captivity, that he's going to draw them, that they're going to be scattered, but he's going to bring them back, and that eventually he's going to not just circumcise their body, he's going to circumcise their heart. And they're thinking they don't yet have a heart to perceive or eyes to see or ears to hear everything that is going on. And so God encourages them with this verse. Chapter 29, verse 29, he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And this law, he's not talking about the list of do's and don'ts in the Mosaic law. He's talking about the law, the... the, can you hand me my Bible? I need this. He's talking, to, he's talking about his word that he's speaking. Now, they, at that time, only had about, I don't know, this much. And he's going to continue to write all this, but he says that you may become all and that you will be able to do all that's in here, that you will be able to become this, this word. It will be life to you. This is what I'm revealing to you and to your children forever. This is what I'm giving you. The Israelites had... Oh, yes, I was supposed to put that up there. The Israelites had a lot of pain. We have a lot of pain. The Israelites had a lot of things happen that they couldn't explain. We have a lot of things happen that we can't explain, right? I still, I, I had uh, some of our closest friends, their, their four-year-old son drowned several years ago, five years, almost five years ago. I can't explain it. I cannot explain that. Some things are revealed to us in this life and time, and some things are not. There is a lot we don't know, and there is a lot we're not going to know in this lifetime. And it's this area of not knowing that the enemy tries to take advantage of us. He tries to take advantage of our ignorance and bully us into confusion because once we get convinced of something that isn't true because we don't know how to confront the enemy and his schemes, the way he works and the way he deals with us, we don't know how to combat him, we become unstable. James 1.18 says we become unstable or double-minded because there is, we're, we're in this state of confusion. Have you ever felt confused about looking at trying to make sense of what's going on around you? That's why we need to focus not on what we don't know. We need to focus on what we do know. This is what he's revealed to us. This is the path of life. This is the light that leads to life. If I... As a a fourth grader, if I looked at my surroundings and I drew conclusions just on the data that I saw in the physical realm, the conclusion I drew led to darkness. But when the Lord illuminated it, when he showed me what was really going on behind the scenes, that leads to life. Romans 8.6 says, for to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace a carnal mind to be carnally minded is not just to be flesh fleshy it's to focus only on what we can see to dwell on what we can see and to dwell on maybe the things we can't understand because what we see doesn't make sense. But to be spiritually minded or to dwell on what's eternal, on his word, what's in the spirit, that leads to life and peace. It is not our responsibility to have all the answers. It is our responsibility to stay in faith with the one who does. There is nothing unspiritual or ignorant or weak about saying, I don't know, yet. God, in His grace, has enabled you to put yet at the end of all of your I don't knows. You might not get an experience like I had that could show you what happened in the situation you can't explain. But if you stay spiritually minded, you do get revelation along the way, and you get a larger and clearer and fuller picture than you ever would by dwelling on darkness. Does it matter what we dwell on, what we think on? Well, Scripture says how much does it matter? It's a matter of life and death. You can have death working in you by what you dwell on, by what you think on. and I, you, you can have life working in you by the thoughts you think, by what you dwell on. Amen. There are at least two paths of thinking you can go down. One or many that leads to darkness and pain and one that leads to life and peace. And what's, this is probably maybe... Uh, a little difficult to unpack, but the question is, is can we control what we dwell on? Can we control what we really think about? Well, the enemy will tell you that we can't, but he's a liar. Scripture says that we can. I'm not talking about a momentary reaction, like whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, or whether you're having a bad day or not, or whether you didn't get enough sleep, or, you know, whether you you ate some bad pasta from fill in the blank. I I don't want to reference any restaurants here locally, but it's, it's not about that. But what you dwell on, what you continue to recycle over and over on the hamster wheel in your brain, yes, Scripture says, we have control over what we think and we dwell on. And I want to say, if you are struggling to not dwell on darkness and it feels impossible, talk to somebody, talk to a pastor, get some Christian therapy, get some Christian counseling, do something, take a step out. Because if you dwell on darkness, it leads to pain and death. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. We can say, change the channel. Change it. I mean, it takes... Painful lying thoughts can come at you many times in an hour. And it takes... It is painful to cast them down many times in an hour. It's not easy. But we can say no I resist that in Jesus' name, for it is written. That's how Jesus did it. He was tempted. He was, he was tempted in all ways like we are. But he, when he was tempted, he said, no, for it is written. He dwelled on things that led to life and peace, which is the word of God. And then, like Philippians 4.8 says, oh, that's not, okay, that we can dwell on things that are true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. How many of you know something that is worthy of praise? Amen. Right? When Jesus interfered for the woman caught in adultery, he turned away her accusers, he set her on the path of righteousness, and he proclaimed in Roman, in John Chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So if we follow Jesus up here in our thinking, then we can walk in the light down here that leads to light. I'm here to tell you, there is a light at the end of all of your tunnels. If you cannot see light at the end of the tunnel, turn around Turn around. There's light at the end of every tunnel. Don't dwell on everything that you don't know. The darkness can cloud what you have already learned, and it can even talk you out of truths that you used to understand. Have you ever had a thought that brought you down? Right? Well... I'm going to play some some, uh, critical thinking for you. If you've had a thought that brought you down, then a thought can bring you up. Okay. Have you ever had a thought that whispered death over you? Okay. Well, if a thought can whisper death, then a thought can speak life over you. If a thought can make you weak, a thought can make you... If a thought can make you hurt, a thought can make you healed. That's why it's so important to think on, to stay on, to dwell on the path of peace. Face the light in the tunnel. His Word is supposed to be our thoughts on life. So when unexplainable suffering happens, what is it that we know from Scripture? Well, we know so much, but I just want to give you three things that I know, that we know, that will help you combat, that helps me combat the enemy coming in to confuse and distract and overturn the good things that God is doing. What do we know? The first thing, God did not send the storm. Now, when I talk about this, I know there's a lot of theology on storms. I'm not going to break, I'm not going to try to investigate it all. I'm not going to try to uh, fight every, every, everything that I don't agree with or affirm everything I do. I just want to give you one slice, one thought. And for the purpose of this message, the storm is a destructive force that projects fear and doubt. It's a destructive force that projects fear and doubt. There are two, at least two examples of symbolic storms in scripture that are used for teaching this concept. The first is from 1 Kings chapter 19. This is when, this was 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm not going to read it, but uh, the prophet Elijah, if you remember, he's on the mountaintop with the prophets of Baal, and... They have this great thing, the prophets of Baal cut and slice themselves and do everything and nobody shows up. Elijah calls down fire, boom, consumes the altar, consumes the moat, consumes everything and the prophets of Baal run scattered, some of them die and I mean God shows up in a miraculous way. Guess what? The leaders of that land didn't like it and so Elijah went from the mountain Seeing God do amazing things, he's running in fear, he's vexed in his spirit, he's depressed, he's questioning his call, he doesn't want to do what the Lord has called him to do anymore, he runs and he hides in a cave. And the Lord comes to him and he says, come out, go out onto the the ledge, I want to show you something. And a great wind comes and demolishes rock and rends everything like a hurricane or a tornado and destroys pieces of the mountain. And what does God say? The word says, and the Lord was not in the storm. What that means is he didn't send the storm. He did not send what was projecting fear and doubt and despair into Elijah. A fire comes and burns the trees and rages against all over the mountainside, right? Another thing that we as humans, as people, it would project fear and doubt in us if we're in a cave and there's a fire burning up the hillside. And scripture says, the Lord was not in the fire. Then an earthquake happens, right? And it's about, you can imagine, rocks shaking and coming down. You're in a cave, right? It's projecting fear and doubt over Elijah. And the Lord, the scripture says, the Lord was not in the earthquake. It says, the Lord was in the what? The still, small voice. Now, I want to ask you, If Elijah could hear the whisper of the Lord, where was the Lord? He's right here, whispering in your ear. The Lord was holding Elijah's hand with him in the storm. He wasn't the author of the storm. He didn't send it. From the New Testament, you can look at Luke 8:23. Um, disciples are sleeping on the boat. They've been with Jesus. They've seen miracles. Jesus is sleeping. The storm comes to project what? Fear and doubt. The disciples all of a sudden are talked out of everything they've heard Jesus say in the last year. In a heartbeat. Right? Have you been there? I've been there. I've been talked out of all. I'm in confusion. I'm in fear. I'm in unbelief. Moments, days after I've seen the Lord do great and amazing things. Jesus calms the storm. Now I want to say if Jesus calmed the storm, could the storm have been sent by our Heavenly Father? Does He, cal- like, a house divided itself cannot stand? If God the Father sent the storm, Jesus wouldn't have calmed it. Jesus calmed the storm because the storm, the destructive force projecting fear and doubt in the, in the disciples, in the hearts of the disciples, did not come from the Lord. I've heard numerous Believers talk about God sending storms, causing storms, allowing storms to explain the pain they are feeling, to make sense of suffering that we don't understand. And they take scriptures like, the Lord works in mysterious ways, or his ways are higher than our ways. I've even heard, say, some call disasters like earthquakes and floods and fires and hurricanes, they refer to them as acts of God. Have you heard that, right? No! Nothing could be further from the truth. I would say, God did not send the campfire to paradise as a judgment on California, okay? No matter what prophets you're listening to, God did not send the fire as a judgment on California. Is there sin and all kinds of craziness in California? Yes. But the fire was not a judgment on California, and I will prove it to you in Scripture. So... God's judgment for sin was put on Jesus and satisfied. That's why Jesus went to the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his public ministry. And he read from the prophet Isaiah, and he talks about the year of jubilee. He says, right, that uh, the, age, this, the year of the Lord's favor or the age of the Lord's favor is at hand and was being fulfilled by him in the flesh, in the earth, the age we are living in now is God's jubilee for humanity where all debts are paid, captives are set free, liberty is brought to the oppressed, and the sick are healed. This is God's victorious and final word over us. This is the glorious age of God's favor, not his wrath. When wrath, God's wrath is poured out on sin in the earth, news flash, we won't be here it's that's why when when you know Abraham or uh, the, when God was about to pour out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah for sin way back then right the number of righteous people that he would save it for he pulled the righteous out then the wrath went down and i can tell you god would not pour out his wrath on the body of christ we are the body of christ we are the body of christ Are you telling me there's not one righteous person in Paradise, California? That's a lie. He's not pouring out his wrath on the body of Christ in the earth. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 said that as God's children, we are not appointed to his wrath. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, not God. Satan is the author of the destructive forces and storms causing fear and doubt in your life, not God. God did not send the storm. That is good news, by the way. Number two, like Elijah, where was God? God was is holding your hand in the storm. So in Psalm 73, verse 21 through 23, Asaph, who was a priest, he was a child of God, he was a psalmist, right? He is lamenting in this, in this psalm, he's lamenting a time that he faced death while struggling with envy in his life. He was jealous of the wealth of the wicked. Have you ever been jealous of somebody else's when your path is like, I'm doing all this for the Lord, and you look over there, and doesn't that life look easier than what I'm going through? This is Asaph. And he says, thus, my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was foolish and ignorant. I felt like a beast, no better than an animal before you, God. Nevertheless, I know I am continually with you, you hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, or at the moment of my death, you will carry me. You will receive me. You will, it says literally, you will take me into glory. God has you by the hand. And he won't let go, even across the moment of your death and the moment of any death of any believer, anywhere in time, anywhere on earth. When believers die, they aren't with their bodies at the moment of death. They are taken by the hand into glory. I have witnessed that with my uncle. My uncle was an agnostic. He was a wonderful and funny and brilliant man. I prayed that God would extend his life to the day of salvation for years. He ended up in a hospital bed at Twin Cities, Struggling to breathe, wrestling with cancer. Um, I was at band practice at the Mendenhall's house. We circled up. We were praying for him. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, go now. Now, this was 1030 at night on a Monday night. I drove to Twin Cities. I'm getting shaky and anxious, and I don't know what I'm doing. The hospital's closed. Not closed, but there's, there's no visiting hours at 11 o'clock at night. I'm thinking I must have heard wrong. I turn around, I get back in my car, and I'm starting to drive away. The Holy Spirit grips me like, I mean, cold sweat grips me. I get back out, an ambulance drives up, and all the emergency doors open. So I walked in after the emergency people, and I start wandering through the dark aisles of the hospital. I go up. I find him in his room. I start reading the scriptures. The Lord tells me, he says, go back and tell him from the beginning the plan that I have had in your life and why you came to know me and accept me. I go back. He's sitting there listening. Tears start coming down his face. He says, I believe. A few minutes later, li- that literally, he, cr- I, he croaked the words out. A few minutes later, I see his hand go up from his bed like this. He took a hand And then his arm fell flat and he died. And you can see the shake of the body. But this presence of glory came in. The Lord came and took him by the hand and received him into glory. The moment that his body died, my uncle wasn't there. God takes people by the hand into glory. He has you, like the psalmist Asaph said. He is is with you continually. He has got you by the hand today, tomorrow, in this age, the ages to come, and even at the moment of your death, and all the way into glory. God has you by the hand. Number three, God's place is your forever home. I'm starting my first of three Pentecostal closes. No, I'm kidding. We are almost done. I will be... uh, Heaven is real, and it's wonderful, right? John, I say every believer that has gone before is already there. So there are no believers who used to be, so we really shouldn't talk about them in the past tense. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there. David and Ruth are there. Isaiah and Jeremiah are there. Peter, James, John, and Mary are there. Paul, Timothy, and Priscilla are there. Our own spiritual mothers and fathers are there. John visited heaven and wrote down some of what he saw. What did he see? No more tears, no more sorrows, no more death, no more curse, no more night, right? It sounds good, right? That's, there is a light at the end of every tunnel. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, this is the last one, he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And I want to stop just there. Your spirit is not, the, you, the believer's spirit, your spirit is not going to sleep in the ground with your body until Jesus comes back. He is talking about your physical body. To be absent from your body is to be present with the Lord. You are a spirit, eternally crafted, created, given divine and a measure of God's creative glory that's your spirit. When you were born again, you, you have that. You also are, you exist here. You have an earth suit so that you can walk around in this physical world. When you die, your spirit will be absent from this decaying body, and that body will go and sleep in the ground while you are, your spirit is present with the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, The unglorified body will be glorified and you'll get a new glorified body so that you can be in a new physical realm, free of death, free of sin, free of the curse, free of everything. But you are not going to sleep in the ground until the Lord comes back. Are you with me? So he says this, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Again, those are the bodies who have fallen asleep. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive here in this physical realm, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ, their bodies, right, will be glorified and raised, and their spirits who are communing in the perfect and beautiful presence of the Lord, they will get a new glorified body, and after that, you know, like Jesus' glorified body can walk through walls. Hallelujah, I wanna do that. After that, right, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so... We will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, why does Paul say to encourage one another with these words? We need it. We need encourage. I need it. We need encouragement. Tell your neighbor, say, you need encouragement. God's place is your forever home. So how do we combat, right? When unexplainable suffering happens, we need to keep real straight that the destructive forces projecting fear and doubt in your life and in my life, Pastor Mike, in your life and my life, and in this earth did not come from God. We need to be sure that we know that God has you, has me by the hand in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, and that God's place is your forever home. How do we combat the fear and doubt by storms of unexplainable suffering? One, you must receive Jesus. You must receive Jesus. Receive him today if you haven't. You must be ready. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't have the whole plan. We see in part. We prophesy in part. We, we get glimpses, and it's up to us to not put anything in the blanks that we don't understand that's not in here. If you can't explain it, just let it lie. I don't know. I don't know. That's good news because there's a yet at the end of every I don't know. So stand with me and we're going to make a declaration and then you're going to go and have a happy Christmas season. I'm not dwelling on what I don't know. I'm rejoicing in what I do know. Say it with me. I'm not dwelling on what I don't know. I'm rejoicing in what I do know. Again, I'm not dwelling on what I don't know. I'm rejoicing in what I do know. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all that you have shown us in your word that is the path of light that leads to life. And I pray in this Christmas season, we would be fully facing and focused and walking on the path that leads to life. We rejoice in the light that you have shown in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.